Hi, and welcome to Beyond Parking, a podcast brought to you by the British Parking Association. My name's Joey, and I'm here today with Julian, and we both work in the technology, innovation and research team. Well, hello again. How are you, Joey? I'm good. I'm good. I'm still up in Manchester. Ah, have they, have they kept you there? I believe things are a bit challenging up there at the moment. Well, we're not allowed to have people around to our homes at the moment, but um, yeah, I'm... So no house parties? No house parties, no. Oh, Although technically on. you're not allowed that down south either. Of course, yes, yeah. Let's not get carried away with ourselves down here. So today we've got uh, Professor Peter Jones. Uh, that's not the uh, Dragon's Den chap, is it? No, no. I reckon give a few more episodes and the, uh, you know, the rise of the Beyond Parking podcast, he'll probably want to be on it. He'll probably be knocking at our door. Yeah, so, yeah. Well. <laughs> We're doing well there, aren't we, on the, uh, on the listenership figures? It's good to hear. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So Peter's Professor of Transport and Sustainable Development at UCL, and he has a wealth of knowledge from his work over many years looking at congestion, transport, infrastructure in many different countries. And what I found fascinating is he got us to think about congestion not just being about cars tail to ends, you know, causing pollution and noise and everything else in a city, but who you ask, congestion is something different to a pedestrian, to a cyclist or to your drivers. And as we look at park active and we look at promoting active travel, very very um, useful for us to think in that way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, two of the key areas he focuses on are travel behaviour and transport policy and looking at how dynamic parking could support government agendas and policies and that's something that um, I think moving forward is going to be really important. Okay so this is going to be a two-part podcast series while I was editing it. Two-part? I know, I know it's exciting. The first for us. So while I was editing it I decided that there wasn't really anything that I didn't want to share with you guys and it's all really interesting. So we're going to be listening to the first part now and the second part in two weeks. So let's get on with the podcast, shall we? Yeah, let's go over to the interview. Hi, Peter. Great to see you again. And welcome to the Beyond Parking podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Um, I was wondering if we could start in more general terms, just so our listeners get to know a little bit more about you. If you could tell us about your interest in transport and sustainable development. Yeah, sure. And thanks very much for inviting me. Um, yeah, I'm based in the Centre for Transport Studies at UCL and um, where I'm Professor of Transport and Sustainable Development. And my interests particularly relate to transport policy, travel behaviour and how that all of, comes out on the ground in terms of how we can actually organise our lives and how transport contributes to that. Thank you, that's really interesting and uh, segues quite nicely into my next question, which is very much around that kind of thing. So it's about how parking fits into the kind of wider government agenda. So for example, health and fitness, active travel, net zero. And I was just wondering what your thoughts are on how travel behaviour and transport policy can influence and support those agendas, particularly in the realms of parking? Well, if you think about parking, there's really sort of four elements to it. Um, There's the amount of parking you provide, there's the location where you put it, there's how you regulate who can or what can park there or load there, um, and then there's how you price it. 
And so there are these four different elements to work with, and they can be used in different ways to support different types of policy. So, for example, with the concern um, about air quality in cities, uh, a number of local authorities, um, both with residential parking, but also on-street parking, have actually started introducing different parking charges, depending on either the, uh, the emissions of the vehicle in terms of whether they're petrol or diesel, or in terms of their CO2 emissions to try and encourage people either to use cleaner vehicles for air quality or to move away from carbon-based vehicles in order to help us get towards carbon zero. Um, so through regulation and pricing, it, it's possible to uh, affect that. Um, equally, if we're trying to encourage people to become more active, and obviously there's a big concern around COVID, that uh, with public transport not being at full capacity, then uh, there's a limit to how many people can come in by car without the city, towns and cities grinding to a halt. Then that's where parking can be used to regulate uh, the number of spaces available for people in the city. And as we've seen over many years, uh, park and ride sites, for example, can be provided to support uh, people driving from rural areas to the edge of urban areas, but then using public transport to come in or increasingly to be able to hire cycles or e-scooters or things like that. So um, we can try and regulate, as I say, the volumes and, and where traffic builds up uh, by using parking uh, as a tool to do that. It's, uh, it's really interesting hearing all of that. And uh, it, I think it's important to consider how much parking is more than just the act of, of putting your car somewhere, but all of the policy and the pulls and pushes and levers that are going behind what uh, influences where we park and how much we pay. I'm very interested um, looking through your uh, your literature, that all, all of your publications, there seems to be a lot of comparative studies looking at other European countries and looking at how they've managed congestion and space allocation. What could you say about what you've perhaps learned from other countries? What could we learn in the UK from how it's done elsewhere? I think there are quite a lot of similarities and differences. It's very much a two-way process. People learn from us and we learn from them. Um, we completed a major EU project recently, which actually looked back over 50 or 60 years uh, at how transport policy has changed in five capital cities in, in Western Europe. So there was London, Paris, Berlin, uh, Vienna and Copenhagen, all well-known cities. And we could see a similar broad process in each of those cities that 50 or 60 years ago, after recovery from the Second World War and a big boom in car ownership, all politicians were very focused on trying to design the city around the car so that people had their new freedoms, they wanted to drive. So it was all about how can we provide more parking spaces in cities? Uh, how can we build uh, motorways or elevated roads to actually get more traffic to come in? Introducing one-way systems, new uh, traffic control systems, things like that, to try and maximise the availability of people, a space for people to drive into and around cities. And then in all those cities, at some point, people realise there's a limit to this. You just can't provide enough parking roads for everybody to drive in. And in fact, in the early models that were developed in the UK, uh, in London rather, um, the early modelling suggested everybody um, wanted to drive into the centre of London, even if you had wide motorways and, and ring roads, uh, the traffic would be 60, uh, just st stationary if everybody wanted to drive. So it became obvious that you just can't really, certainly in the European context, um, build a city around cars. And if you do, you'd have to more or less completely destroy its fabric. So cities then moved on to saying, well, 
actually, um, our focus is not on moving metal boxes around. Our job is to make it easy for people to move around cities. So the focus became on, on mobility and movement of people rather than just movement of, of particularly cars. And so then there was a focus on improving public transport um, through uh, new uh, railway lines, uh, enhanced bus lines and so on, cycle networks and that sort of thing. And then what we found in all these Western European cities, sometimes earlier, sometimes later, but by the turn of the century, so around 20 years ago, cities started re-examining themselves again and saying, well, actually, our cities are more than just moving people and goods around. Cities actually are important places for economic activity, social activity, cultural activity, and really cities are important places. And then the focus became on creating cities that are livable, healthy and attractive. And mobility is an important part of that, but we start seeing a bit of a pushback. So um, in, in Britain, for example, we had Trafalgar Square, where we took out the north side of the large gyratory there in order to provide more space for tourists and local people to come experience the place, experience events. That reduced capacity by about 40% in that particular place. But we, we see these examples all over Europe and parts of the United States where people start removing major road infrastructure in the center of cities um, and actually change the balance so that we have more space for livability, uh, more pleasant uh, environments and so on, and also uh, a greater emphasis on public transport, walking, cycling. And what that means therefore is the role of parking changes. Um, if you're trying to uh, make it as easy as possible for as many people as possible to drive into a city, then obviously you're focused on providing as much parking as possible. On the other hand, if you, if you get to the point where you're focusing on livability and placemaking, you actually want to restrict traffic, and then parking becomes a means of actually controlling both the amount of people driving into the cities and also perhaps prioritising certain groups through the way in which you regulate who can park in certain places or the way you do pricing. So as I say, the role of parking changes in that situation. And that's all tr also true with other things in that if you're trying to measure the success of your policies, then if you're interested in trying to maximise car use in cities, then obviously your measure of success are things around how easy it is to drive, how reliable it is to drive, etc. If you're focusing more on providing sustainable mobility, um, then you're looking at the quality of public transport and the reliability of public transport, the quality of cycling and walking networks and so on. And if you're interested in livability, then uh, things like public health become more important, um, pleasant environments for people to, uh, to come into to share the experiences of the city. And in that context, um, it's interesting how attitudes to congestion have changed. So when cities were focused very much on trying to encourage and promote car use, then congestion was seen as something that was a very serious problem and had to be uh, dealt with and reduced through um, building more roads, gyratories, uh, more advanced traffic signal control. On the other hand, when you get to a point, uh, as most of our cities in Western Europe now have, including London, certainly in central inner London, are saying that our focus is on creating a high quality environment for citizens and visitors to enjoy the city. And we want to encourage as many people as possible to come in by public transport or walking and cycling. 
then actually congestion is seen as less important um, in two senses. One is that um, it is a factor, but there are many other things you're trying to do as well, improve air quality, uh, encourage physical activity and so on. So it becomes one of several indicators rather than being a dominant one. But also it becomes a bit less relevant because if in the city most people are driving, then congestion on the road network is a good indication of delays and frustrations by experienced by motorists. But in a place like London uh, and other large cities where more and more people are not driving but using other modes, then congestion doesn't really tell you how well those travellers are experiencing the city because they don't count in the congestion measure. And it might well be that um, if we, as has happened in London, for example, but also Manchester and Birmingham and so on, if we've started taking out road capacity to provide uh, space for cycling, bus lanes, uh, more pedestrian crossings, more green space in cities, um, then uh, invariably that provides less space for motorised traffic. Um, and so that part of the movement may actually be experiencing problems, but that's released the capacity in order to make cycling faster and safer or walking faster and safer and so on. So congestion is still a factor, but it affects a fewer um, numbers of people traveling um, over time. So for example, in London, in the 1990s, if we looked at all journeys made by London residents, 46% of those journeys were as a car driver. By the late um, 2000s and uh, uh, teens, uh, that had come down to 32% from 46%. So in other words, congestion was, was affecting uh, a lower proportion of people who are making journeys. And we need ways of measuring uh, how the people who use other modes experience their journeys to get a balanced picture of how well the network is performing overall. Thank you, Peter. That was a really nice uh, tour through the history of, of congestion in a way, if I can say that but also thinking about all the different factors. And something that uh, makes me think of is that uh, you talked about how you have to think about how you measure congestion and it looks like there's going to be a lot more cycling and walking. Mm -hmm. um, has, have any of your studies looked at um, that type of congestion, increase in you know, people on the uh, pavements, increase in cycle lanes um, and, and, and its effects? Or is, is that too much of an early early area to, to have any reliable data on? It's not, uh, well, there are localised pockets in London, for example, mm. you know, Oxford Street is seen as a very uh, congested street, as in London Bridge in the morning when uh, commuters come over from London Bridge into, into the centre of the city of London. Mm -hmm. um, mm. But other cities that have high levels of cycling, um, particularly in, in Denmark and, and parts of the Netherlands, they really have a serious problem now with cycling congestion. Um, and Although for many decades, politicians have been encouraging as many people to cycle as possible, they've almost hit the same problem in most places as was hit with people who were driving in the 60s and 70s, as in there's a limited amount of space that you can actually uh, provide for movement. If, you're, if you have a conventional street with shops either side or houses and you want a footway, you need some space for delivery vehicles and essential traffic. Um, you want reasonable sized footways, there's a limit at some places to how much space, or at junctions, there's a limit to how much space you can provide. So yes, um, particularly in relation to cycling, um, that congestion is beginning to see uh, seen as a problem. And 
it's almost that there are limits to growth potentially appearing in some cities. And of course, COVID makes that more extreme because we're doing social distancing. So the capacity of a cycle lane or a footway is going down. So we're facing these problems in a way that we haven't had to perhaps before. And that's leading to some very interesting trade-offs uh, in terms of taking uh, space away from general traffic or in maybe one or two cases bus lanes to make sure there's enough space on the footway and cycle lanes for, um, for mobility uh, while maintaining social distancing. We talk a lot about congestion and it, it sounds as though it's something very uh, tangible and very obvious, but it's actually the measurement of it is, is not necessarily that straightforward and doesn't necessarily give you a very good comparative measure from one city to another. So put simply, um, the measure of congestion is usually the difference in travel time between free flow speed in the middle of the night um, and speed at various times during the day when uh, you know, there's much more traffic. And the difference in that uh, between the free flow speed and the experience speed during the day is one measure of congestion. But what we find is that different cities have different flow, free flow speeds uh, because they have different speed limits. And um, increasingly, you'll, you'll be aware there's, there's more and more pressure to have 20 mile an hour speed limits more extensively in cities. And some London boroughs have now made all their roads 20 miles an hour. So the free flow speeds have actually been going down. Um, and therefore, it appears as though congestion has been going down, where in fact, it's not that the speeds during the day are going up, it's that the speeds at night are going down. So it may seem very simple to measure congestion, but when you go into it, it's a little bit complicated. And uh, with different speed limits, different measures in different cities, they're not always as comparable as it might seem. Thank you, Peter. That, that's really, um, really interesting to hear about. And it makes me think that um, pollution is something that we just think of the air, but there's noise pollution as well. And there's lots of different aspects to these things that really tick us off when we're trying to get around cities at the moment and, and many aspects to it. Yes, and, and, and that's where um, you know, there are different policy levers, if you like, to, to help with that. So traffic signals uh, are very interesting. I mean, traditionally, they've been seen as being there to regulate traffic flow and in our more advanced cities to actually try and optimise the use of the, the network and the junctions to minimise delays to motor vehicles. But you can also use traffic signals to relocate queues in, in York, for example, in the inner city area there where the roads are very narrow, very poor air pollution. So they use traffic signals to gate traffic to keep it further out so that where the queues were, it was more in open space. So it caused less problems for uh, tourists and residents. Um, and similarly, it's possible to use traffic signals not to minimize travel time, but to improve reliability so that you hold back some capacity. So that on days when it's raining or there's been a traffic accident or something, you release some of that capacity and so the day-to-day -day variability goes down. So we can be much more sophisticated. And again, the same with parking, because we have the option of deciding where there is parking, how much there is, who can use it, and at what price, that gives us option to favour the sorts of parking activity that will support policies to uh, improve air quality or reduce noise or uh, reduce carbon and things like that. That's really interesting. It's um, definitely kind of sits in line with a lot of the stuff we've been talking around about, about smarter parking. And actually, like you mentioned, it's, it's smarter transport and using mm. transport to to support different different agendas and different sectors. I was just wondering, actually, um, as you were saying that, because you were talking about 
how cities have become um, more about being livable, healthy places that are attractive for people mm-hmm. and how you can use parking to kind of support that agenda in terms of supporting different sectors to allow them to do their work more efficiently or more successfully for the population that they're serving. Parking's uh, controls have been around for 60 or 70 years or more and, and actually they're, they're very sophisticated because we have this opportunity to decide where to put parking, how much, um, who can use it and how we price it. So it's possible through using those four different instruments, if you like, or elements of parking to actually fine tune the provision in a way that very neatly meets with what you're trying to achieve. Uh, so, for example, um, with things like uh, hospitals, for example, there's been a lot of discussion recently um, around making sure that essential workers are able to get to hospital um, at a time when public transport wasn't operating uh, very uh, very fully. So then the policy in many hospitals that previously had been there to discourage um, staff coming in by car actually changed the policy to actually make sure they had parking spaces when they needed them. Similarly, um, we know perhaps there are certain types of patients that are very car dependent because of the types of disability they have and so on. And therefore, through regulation or pricing, one can make sure that the limited amount of space available goes to the people who are felt to need it most. So I think having set out a policy, uh, whether it's to do with uh, something to do with the environment or social impacts or economic benefits, then with those four dimensions of parking, it's, it's possible to uh, actually uh, fine-tune those to help achieve uh, that policy. And one, one interesting change, I think, over the last few years is, is the recognition of the curb actually as being a very important asset. Um, for a long time, obviously, the curbside has been used for parking, for loading, for drop-off, pick-up, etc., um, through regulation. But it's seen, been seen as a rather head ad hoc series of activities and it's only recently partly because of the availability of new software that we better understand how the curb space is being used and the importance it has for sustaining businesses either through uh, certain types of customers or through uh, parking through servicing the buildings and things like that and obviously making sure that uh, that uh, vehicles taxis uber public transport can get people near the places they want to go so I think the curb now is seen as a very active space on our streets that can be managed um, in a way that uh, can actually promote the various objectives we're trying to achieve, environmental, economic and social. And, and also in a way from local authorities that potentially gives them a, a, a good revenue stream. Until now, uh, often parking has been charged, but drop off, pick up and loading has not been charged traditionally. But now there are discussions about whether because of the scarcity of, scarcity of space, then companies would be prepared to, to pay for loading if they had a guaranteed space outside the premises they wanted to deliver to. And equally, to try and uh, regulate the uh, drop-off, pick-up, things like that, one might charge for that as well. So I think the landscape's changing, becoming much richer, and the availability now of data and the new apps and so on mean that, that we can look in a much more sophisticated way at the way we manage and utilise the asset of the curbside. The whole digitising of the uh, the parking landscape and, and how we find spaces, how it's charged, um, is something we're very much uh, pushing at, at the BPA through various initiatives. We've got an alliance for parking data. We're looking at digitising traffic regulation orders. 
so that um, what you're talking about can become more of a reality where, for example, variable um, pricing, dynamic pricing can nudge people to certain areas. And the idea of, of, of monetizing the curbside, this wonderful phrase of, of the curb kiss has started to come into uh, conversations around how that's now possible with, with uh, a more digitized curbside and, and um, traffic regulation um, world. So that was great to hear from Professor Peter Jones, a fascinating insight into his work. And in our next episode, we're going to hear about his current research and what's on the horizon. Yeah, and that will be in two weeks time from when this podcast was released. And have, have a fab two weeks. Um, I know at least one of us, Julian, is going on holiday. <laughs> I'm going to try and get some sun out there. It's been a busy time at the BPA over the last few months, so uh, a well-earned couple of weeks off I should yeah. be having. Cool. All right. Bye, guys.